everybody, welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top news stories and analysis every single week. Um, today, I've got Hugh and Jess from the Somex team with me, and we are going to be talking about the implications of the metaverse. We're talking about emerging tech uh, and is it poised to make healthcare more accurate, accessible, and sustainable? Or are we all just wasting our time? Uh, and along those same lines, uh, the viability of the digital healthcare sector. Uh, is it viable? And if it is viable, what do companies actually need to do? Um, a superb list of things that we're going to talk about there. Um, but yeah, let's crack into our first story. So our first story today Um this is a feature from Health Tech newspaper. Uh, the implications of the metaverse for future healthcare treatment and medical education. So, Health Tech newspaper have listed out essentially a load of different use cases for uh, the metaverse in healthcare. Uh, Jess, you've had a read of this. Uh, yeah, do you want to summarise it or tell us what you think? The metaverse has been getting a lot of criticism recently of people saying that it's over-promising and over-hyped and over-invested in, but what impact is it actually having in people's lives? And the healthcare space is a good example of a field where the metaverse does actually have potential to have big impact. And in some cases, it's already started having big impact. Um, so some of the most promising areas highlighted in this article um, are for training purposes for healthcare staff. So providing more accessible, affordable and impactful training. Um, also for rehabilitation therapies for patients um, and, for example, for physiotherapy. Uh, I think there are various pilots and trials going on um, to see whether um, physiotherapy and rehab programs delivered via VR or mixed reality are having successful outcomes. Other areas where the metaverse is having some kind of exciting impact um, is in delivering um, exposure therapies. So for people with like anxiety disorders or with phobias, treatment delivered by VR um, has been shown to have um, good impact there. So I think the general consensus is that um, the metaverse could be fantastic for improving access, removing barriers to treatment across healthcare. Um, but yeah, it kind of remains to be seen whether the promising pilots um, will be adopted on a more like widespread scale um, and whether some of the promises and potential will actually be delivered on. Mm. That that is it's always the question, isn't it? And it it just feels like case by case. Like it, there's two things that come to mind for me. There's sort of like the Apple announcing their new mixed reality headset, and it's three and a half grand, and that means that probably ten people in the UK can actually afford it um, for for what whatever the heck they're going to do with spatial computing and all that sort of things. And there's that kind of like consumery mass market mass model as I say, like a new type of spatial computing stuff in VR and metaverse. There's all of that stuff. But then there's these very kind of clinical academic, hey, we can use it for exposure therapy and do a clinical study. And we can use it for this small group of patients in this narrow use case and actually deliver something. And here's some evidence. So it's kind of, it's, it's trying to like make sense of it in those two arenas, I guess. I don't know how, is it, does it excite you, Hugh, this type of stuff? I feel like there's like two angles there, though, isn't there? There's the consumer side with the Apple device, which is clearly a red herring for healthcare, at least in the UK, mm -hmm. where, as you say, no one's going to ever be able to afford it ever. And even if they could, they wouldn't want to sit on their own uh, like 
just looking at, through a kind of weird screen attached to their head. It's just not it's not something that appeals to me, and I'm assuming quite a lot of people think about it that way. But on the other side, in health, I think I think you know healthcare could be could be the source of where where VR finds its true use case. There's hmm. there's a lot of opportunities to do a lot of things, and I know that there's already a lot of organisations, even beyond some of these studies, beyond some of these trials. Where it is being used really effectively, particularly where there's access barriers, where there's logistical challenges or things like that. I know, for example, that um, Cell and Gene Therapy Catapult, among other uh, healthcare organisations, are using it as a really useful training tool, so that mm. you can access, you know, limited skills taught by you know only a few people really easily on on you know these headsets, so people can experience what like time in the lab or you know a career in that field could look like in in a really easy space of time clearly a lot of good results happening off the back of some of the studies on kind of exposure therapy personally i will say uh not sure i'd want to have immersion therapy in something that gave me claustrophobia but there's great places where it's being used as well and the companies like holocare you know using virtual reality to improve improve surgery improve medical techniques as well so i i just think it's easy to be skeptical um but when you start narrowing in on those potential use cases or current use cases i think there's there's space to be positive yeah and i think that's almost it's almost playing right into the definition of a hype curve as well which is that this had its hype day and then it had its trough arguably and are we now getting to that sort of plateau where it's like well actually okay the hype people are no longer talking about it but it hasn't gone away those use cases that we've been talking about there about education about certain therapies and mental health therapies we, we have been talking about this for a long time those studies still keep going on those clinics and those those people receiving benefit in those ways that is still happening and it hasn't gone anywhere and so actually are those areas just strengthening and is it just not big news anymore but actually just solving a problem i guess perhaps that's a sign of this space maturing it's a sign of those use cases solidifying uh, because we are still talking about them. Um, it's just that, as you say, at play at the same time is this narrative around the consumer metaverse and people trying, definitely trying to get excited about it. Um, but to your point, Hugh, maybe we just keep calm and carry on. Uh, for people that are using VR and the metaverse in healthcare, they just carry on with their use cases. They keep providing the value. They keep improving it day by day. Um and that's the way that it just gets better for patients and whatever new fancy device comes out by Apple, Facebook, or if Bezos fancies releasing one, who knows? But yeah, we just perhaps ignore that in healthcare and use the new devices when they pop up, but keep going along the academic routes that we are and uh, try and get the benefit that way. Our next story today is from the World Economic Forum. They've done a piece, Emerging Tech Like AI is Poised to Make Healthcare More Accurate, More Accessible, and More Sustainable. So what they've done is they've put together a load of different use cases. So as their forum launches the 2023 cohort of technology pioneers, they asked those people selected the following question. How do you see emerging technology such as AI and machine learning changing global health outcomes. And so lots of different people have answered this question in different ways. Definitely encourage you to have a look at this article. It's really interesting. But Jess, uh, which one of these, if you had to pick one, caught your eye the most that we can talk about? 
the one that definitely caught my eye was from Daniela Gilbo. At, um, she was the CEO at AIVF. Um, and she's written about how AIVF are using AI for computational embryology. So she explains that the most crucial dilemma in IVF is which embryo has the highest chance of becoming a healthy baby, because, of course, that's the embryo that you want to implant. Um, And currently, embryo evaluation is done by experts um, based on subjective human analysis. However, I think what they're working towards AIVF is working with machines that generate a new understanding of developmental milestones. So they're able to recognize features that can't be seen by the human eye and incorporate data from different sources, providing an outcome that's more accurate than a human embryologist, personalized treatment. Um, So it's about letting machines do what humans can't or are not very good at right now. Um, And then using that insights, using that um, analysis um, to select more viable embryos so that the success rates of IVF are increased. I know that currently the success rates of IVF are fairly low, which is why the whole process can be stressful and expensive for anyone going through it. So I think this um, seems like a really exciting and potentially very valuable use case for AI technology. It does, yeah. And and the phrase computational embryology is uh, a very cool one. And I like that they talk about in this, the, you know, Alan Turing mentioned machine versus human at AIVF they talk about the human machine team I do like that the whole sector is moving to that now like I I remember making the point when we did our last Google event that so often when it comes to particularly in radiology there's always this discussion about what can radiologists how how accurate is a radiologist and how accurate is a is a is an algorithm and it's algorithm versus human all the time and it's just such a tired comparison because at the end of the day why can't we just measure human with current tools versus human with algorithm and future tools and just compare those two things because ultimately that's what it's going to be and so yeah i really like this newer narrative of the just pure acceptance that it's a human machine team as daniela describes it here which i think is wonderful um and yeah computational embryology i mean it it just sparks this thing for me of like every everything that is based on subjective human choice right now and human analysis right now could be quantified and done much better with AI. And so, yeah, just one of one of the many future applications of this, which sounds awesome. Hugh, any thoughts on that or uh, a different one of these that caught your eye? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's just really picking up on that human AI team thing. And I think uh, what uh, Andreas Lawson, um, Chief Executive Officer at Asana, says in the article is quite an interesting one. And he, he says it almost as if we're, you know, he's Braveheart at the beginning of the, <laughs> the, the final scene. Uh, but as we stand on the brink of this exciting new frontier, he says this vision of a healthier world buoyed by AI and machine learning is within our grasp. And I think it is very much the potential for that human AI team to, and, and he, I mean, he says it here, increase the supply and scalability of healthcare professionals. You know, if we can use AI and we can harness the benefits of it, it's making healthcare cheaper. It's providing healthcare, providing diagnostics is going to become easier. It's going to become quicker. It should become cheaper as well. You know, further down in the article, we talk about the computational embryology side, the drug development side. All of this should become cheaper if AI is deployed on it and making it more accessible to everyone which is, I think, you know, a really nice move away from some of the, the conversations we have, all of which are still relevant, 
about just intentionally addressing bias, intentionally addressing what AI might take away from um, equality and accessibility of healthcare, and think about you know the potential that's in there of actually making things easier and cheaper to access. I think that's going to be a that's going to be a real, a real important point on the AI discussion as we go forward. Uh, is it bringing costs down? Uh, is it making healthcare more accessible? Is it making what was once the uh, privilege of a select few open to all? So one company that aren't mentioned in this piece, um, but are doing cool things with AI in terms of um, the development of new medicines is Okabio. And they're using AI to analyze huge volumes of biomedical data um, and look for non-obvious drivers of chronic liver disease. Um, identify biology for further investigation um, and kind of direct their biologists in towards the right like areas of investigation so they can better understand the complexities of gene disease relationships and develop more elegant medicines to restore the healthy function of livers affected by disease. And you can see a much uh, a much less technical um, but sort of similar a similar application in primary care where um companies like clinic which is providing a triage solution cap you know they capture information about um a patients inquiring for gp appointments and essentially there's a there's an ai assisted triage process going on where it's it's supporting with clinical decision making so that patients are seen by the right people uh, that you know the right roles we're leaving the requirement for basically patients to be bounced around um the primary care system yeah, it's clearly adding value in lots of different places, as you say there, from AI triage, primary care to drug discovery and all sorts. Um, do you want to make the point for anybody that picked up on uh, Hugh mentioning Asana? That's Asana with an O rather than the task management um, solution, although they may or may not do task management, but seem to play uh, largely in primary care with uh, onboarding appointments, telehealth, patient monitoring, and online prescription. So a different type of Osana. But if you do go to Asana's website, they have a wonderful, a wonderful graphic and animation on their homepage uh, and seem to have just raised their Series A. So, so congrats to them. And apologies for any mix-up with project management tools. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, AI can do quite a lot, as we've seen in this article. Lots of different people have got lots of different ideas. Definitely encourage you to have a look at that. There's some cool stuff in there. Uh, we'll move on to our next story. So, final story for today, the viability of the digital healthcare sector in 2023. Uh, this is written by Zhang Li, a Forbes Council member. Um, the, I guess the big question, is the digital healthcare sector viable in 2023? Because there are certainly mixed messages and lots of things going on. I think one of the reasons that we've included this is because there's a, there's a really fun list of what seems to make you viable in 2023, which uh, I think Hugh and Jess are going to pick some points out of. But uh, guys, is digital healthcare viable in 2023? Um, should we pack up and go home as Somex? I mean, I think the message that I got from this piece is that if you are doing good things in the right way, then you're still going to succeed, as has always been the message. So I think there's cause for optimism. I think we should become a fintech. So yeah, in this Forbes article, it mentions, so what does the big picture look like? So there's been a recent survey by GSR Ventures, and they are digital health VCs. 
They expect overall valuations to drop in 2023, but they still predict significant investment between $15 billion and $25 billion this year. So for context, Rock Health reported 2021 VC funding at $29 billion, which was almost doubling 2020's uh, $15 billion. And CB Insights reports funding at $17.7 billion in 2022. So it all sounds pretty robust, but there are some more kind of behind the surface numbers they describe here. So there are some key factors that are affecting this financial viability, which, and these are the important points that we mentioned at the start. This is sort of like a list that's been put together of what actually makes you viable, what makes you a strong digital health company at a time where valuations are dropping. So you've got challenges to this fiscal longevity, you've got hurdles to uh, get over, you've got foundations to maintain. So They've listed some challenges uh, and they've listed some potential things you can do about them. So um, I don't know, Justin, to you, what, what stuck out for you in this list of things? I'm happy to kick off on this one. Um, so two kind of big things stuck out for me on, on this list. And I think they're both about whether your product actually does the job you're claiming it to do. Um, first is one of his, his points is how does the data you have related to patient outcomes in clinical efficacy, such as reduced hospital readmissions and healthcare costs, stack up to competitors? This is an interesting one because I don't think it's even necessarily just about competitors. I think it's, you know, if you're a digital therapeutics company, for example, um, you know, trying to market to your, uh, your product to a health system, you may even, you may not struggle to have data and efficacy compared to your competitors, you may have it compared to your sector's competitors. And that's been one of the the big challenges we've seen over the last year, over the last couple of years with digital therapeutics as a solution. You know, the data uh, data for a lot of it just yeah. isn't that strong. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of companies wading into the sector and saying, this is definitely a thing you can use. Um, and then not really having the clinical data to back it up, at least in the applications they're trying to. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that's really important. If you know that you're trying to, I guess, dethrone a legacy provider, uh, make your name against a solution, whether it's a health tech solution or whether it's something a bit more analog, uh, in, in a way, make sure you've got the data to stack it up. And that should be clinical dri- trial data and it should be randomized controlled trials as well. Like if you, the stronger you can get, the better, ideally, uh, tested within uh, within an application that's as, as close as possible to where you're trying to sell it. And then, you know, the technical capabilities data, such as systems uptimes, up response times, and support in lines with customer ex- expectations. It's this really one, this really is a simple one. Like your solution's not going to be adopted if it doesn't make life easier. We're, you know, we're looking at a lot of legacy tech now and thinking this, this is basically unusable and we don't want to replace it with something equally unusable. Um, whether you know it might help you answer a problem, but if everyone's spending their time copying, pasting data from one system to another, or manually inputting it again, or or it breaks for thirty to fifty percent of the time, that's not going to be useful. So uh, I think when you you know when you are going out and marketing your solution, when you are going out and looking for pilots, make sure that you can point to things and say this is what this is the success on top of what we actually achieve and. This, when it comes to what we actually achieve, this is the proof. 
Yeah, I think it's great that this piece doesn't really shy away from asking the difficult questions that founders might be have sticking their head in the sand about up to this point. Um, for example, um, can your company fund investment in building and scaling the technology, talent and infrastructure? Um, so I think it's just saying you're going to need money um, to make this success. Don't expect money to be something that will come following the success. You'll need that money before the success to fund your growth. Um, and also to fund continued innovation. You can't just do your little innovation work and then kind of coast along. You need to be continually innovating and keeping pace. And have you got the structures in place to do that? And have you got the funding in place to do that? The other one, tough question, which is raised here is um, how are you going to be acquiring customers and acquiring users? Again, you can have a great piece of technology, a great idea, but unless you're like really working hard to win those customers and tell people how to use it and like drive more adoption, like people aren't just going to stumble across it and start using it off their own back, um, no matter how great it is. So yeah, you need to figure out how you're going to get people to start using it. It's a good point, Jess, because like when I read this, I I was sort of just like, this is a, this is just a list of stating the obvious, like, like get past regulation can you get it paid for? Can you fund it? Can you get customers? Can you keep innovating? That on the face of it is 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 just a really kind of what seems like a really basic and obvious list. But you but you make a good point that actually when running a company that's raised, let's say you've raised 10 million Series A, and that's actually a checklist of are you are you actually doing all those things? And the, the, the other bit to add on to all of these questions is in this market at this time, the context of this is that funding isn't coming as easy. Everybody's trying to extend their runways. So budgets are being more stretched. So the question does actually become, can you acquire and retain customers in this market at this time when you're trying to extend your runway? And it's not such a quick, oh, of course, yes, or else I wouldn't be running the company. It does become like, no, no, actually think about it. In this time, can you do that? Your point, can can you continue innovating? You know, how much have you got set aside for R&D and continuous R&D? How much have you got for your outbound campaigns and managing your marketing and all of those things. Like it does become really interesting because I, I even read this myself and I go, Hmm, it doesn't, it just made me think of, oh, yeah, actually good point. <laughs> like there's perhaps some stuff you can, you, you don't want to over index for the points where you're weakest, but you don't want to, you don't want to let your weak points like ruin you and end you. And so finding some sort of answer to all these questions can become incredibly important. I think, yeah, it, it's, it's a really, it's a really sort of provocative question. You know, is the company positioned to fund upfront investment in building and scaling technology, talent, and infrastructure? And again, it's a very simple question and three big, broad brushstrokes there of tech, talent, and infrastructure. But for in this market at this time, you know, if you think, if you, if you think about your runway, you think about when it is, when you are next looking to go out to raise money, when you are next looking to go and do that investor roadshow and you think about the growth you're going to have to achieve now in order to get to that round and the metrics that you're going to have to hit, uh, the revenues that you're going to have to hit, the talent that you're going to have to recruit and keep, the systems and the processes you're going to have to put in, in place. It asks here, is there enough 
capital to fund that growth while sustaining existing revenue products. I mean, it, it, th- th- these are just good fundamental questions to ask. And yes, okay, in some part, they might be obvious ones, but it's a good article that does just give, I think, founders that framework to have a look at, to read, to perhaps scoff at at first and go, of course we are. But then some of these questions might rattle around and actually you might end up doing something very, very productive after reading these and, and letting those uh, rattle around a bit because uh, dare I say I might. So yeah, this piece ends on a positive note, um, which is that yeah, the rise and fall of bubble economies is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a natural course of fostering innovation while ultimately producing sustainable models. Um, and essentially, if you can address all of the points which are, which are mentioned in the article and put all the recommendations into practice, um, then you you still do um, stand a good chance of success. Um, limited growth in Q4 of 2022 doesn't have to signal digital healthcare company doom. Um, so that's a great um, positive message, optimistic message for us to end on there. It isn't all doom and gloom, Hugh. We don't have to turn into a fintech. <laughs> <laughs> There is a fintech pigeon, by the way. Uh, we we found that a few a few months ago. That I, I, I genuinely think someone has seen Healthtech Pigeon and they've tried to create fintech pigeon. I should let my friends in Legal Tech Pigeon know, and we can have a <laughs> uh, right. bit of a action. <laughs> yeah, we absolutely should. Do you know? I can't find it. I'm do you know what? It. It's gone. My God, it has flown away. It has flown away. Well, fintech pigeon did exist. Yeah, I can see a LinkedIn post called titled "What Pigeons Can Teach Us About FinTech." <laughs> Pigeons are not renowned for the computing power of their brain, yet they led the fintech evolution. What? Of course they did. <laughs> of course they did. Well, there's some inspiration for some content there. There's definitely some optimism that it's not all doom and gloom, and optimism for you, Hugh, that fintech pigeon. You can probably get the trademark for fintech pigeon now, uh, if no one's actually using it. So perhaps we will expand, but who knows? It seems like at least this article is telling us that there is certainly viability to the digital healthcare sector in 2023. Uh, it just seems that companies need to get the basics right, and a bit of a correction. It seems to say that they're you know summarising this with, um, but industry will learn, companies will learn. Uh, the good companies will still be around and perhaps there'll be a bit of M&A, uh, a bit of consolidation and people will have some bigger budgets to pay us to do more things. Hey, who knows? We can we can dream. So thanks everybody. This has been Health Tech Pigeon. If you want to grab the news stories that we've talked about this week and a load of other ones, you can also see some events and some podcasts to listen to, all that sort of stuff. Head to www.healthtechpigeon.com or just Google Health Tech Pigeon. You can find the newsletter there to subscribe to. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining us.